I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, I am rolling. Okay. Do you want me to say when it... When? Yeah, that would be great. The first song is by a Belgian artist named Angèle, and it's called Balance ton quoi, and it's from 2018. Brilliant. Ils parlent tous comme des animaux de toutes les chattes. Ça parle mal. 2018, je sais pas ce qu'il faut, mais je suis plus qu'un animal. I love her voice. It's the best. <laughs> First of all. Balance ton Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. So the title of the song Balance ton quoi is a reference to the hashtag Balance ton porc, which is denounce your pig, which is squeal on to, your yeah, pig. squeal on your pig. Yeah. Music is intimately linked with French culture and French history. From the politically tinged pop on the streets of Paris to inspirational marches of the French resistance. The resistance higher-ups and people throughout the resistance were really aware of the power of song to unite people like a national anthem, but in this case, a national anthem that sort of came from exile. Roxanne Panchassi teaches history at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, BC. I also do research and scholarship on modern France, culture, war, cinema, literature, all of those kinds of things. Roxanne's going to play DJ today, introducing us to songs which she believes capture the political divides, cultural tensions, and romanticized notions of French history. Yesterday was a day of glory for Paris, a day for history. There was a time when the French were at least able to evacuate their wounded. After dark, the demonstrators began throwing up walls of bricks. It's going to get worse, he says. The next target could well be the Eiffel Tower. We're calling this episode The French Evolution, the history of France in nine songs. And we'll start with Angèle's 2018 song, Balance ton quoi. Ils parlent tous comme des animaux de toutes les chattes. Ça parle mal 2018. Je sais pas ce qu'il faut, mais je suis plus qu'un animal. J'ai vu que le rap est à la mode et qu'il marche mieux quand il est sale. Bah, faudrait peut-être casser les codes. Une fille qui l'ouvre, ce serait normal. Balance ton quoi. Même si tu parles mal des filles, je sais qu'au fond t'as compris. Balance ton quoi. Un jour peut-être ça changera. Balance ton quoi. Donc laisse-moi te chanter. Parler te faire. Moi je passerai pas à la radio. Parce que mes mots sont pas très beaux. Laisse-moi te chanter. 
I love her voice. It's the best. <laughs> first of all. And I adore the video. It's a very cheeky video. Yeah. But let's get to the, the heart of the song, which is that it's an anthem of sorts for the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. What were the dynamics of that movement in France? So the title of the song, Balance Ton Quoi, is a reference to the hashtag Balance Ton Port, which is the French version of the Me Too hashtag, but it means like denounce your pig, which is squeal on your pig. Yeah, squeal on your pig. Yeah. So the Angèle song, very popular in Belgium, very popular in France, and it really speaks to all of those issues, you know, the way that she especially, I mean, she's really beautiful. Hmm. She's young. She's really smart. But some of the lyrics refer to her being told that she's really smart for a beautiful woman, um, being underestimated in various ways, being harassed in different ways, being mistreated, not being treated as an equal because she's a woman. The opening to the video, she's dressed in this kind of like early modern, so like pre-revolutionary, like aristocratic garb. And there, she, she plays all these different roles in the video. She plays a judge. Uh, at one point, she plays a sort of facilitator of a discussion in an anti-sexism school yes. uh, where there are male and female students. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of different characters in the video and a lot of different funny ways that she shows the way that sexual harassment affects Women, But there's also references to more serious, more violent crimes and things like that, too, yeah. in the song. We, we didn't see this in North America. The Me Too movement happened, and there was this resounding uh, support for it, mostly mm-hmm. in North America. But that wasn't the case in France. Can you talk about how it unfolded at the time? So at the time, I mean, it was pretty simultaneous in the sense that the Balance Tempo, I think the hashtag emerged fairly quickly after it did in the, in the U.S. context and the North American context. Mm-hmm. And then there were some famous denunciations um, in the cinema, in the music industry, of uh, men who had committed various types of harassment, even assault, against younger actors or musicians. So that happened. But there was this perception on the part of some women in France, particularly women of an older generation. Catherine Deneuve. Catherine Deneuve was a very famous example, perhaps the most famous example who saw this as uh, the introduction of, like, American puritism into the French context and the disruption of uh, French culture of seduction and romance and that, you know, it's going to make women super apprehensive about accepting compliments, flattery, all of these things that are seen as gallantry, like chivalry, all of these things that that women enjoy from, you know, Deneuve's perspective and the others who participated in this in this resistance to the Me Too movement, and that it would ruin, you know, romance and seduction. That reaction was pretty intense, and it was definitely divided generationally somewhat. They say it's puritanical and fueled by a hatred of men. This urge to send men to the slaughterhouse instead of helping women be more autonomous helps the enemies of sexual freedom, the 100 women said in a column published in Le Monde newspaper. There was a kind of opposition between feminists who saw this as an opportunity to be critical of French cultural milieu where women are in positions of inferiority or their wages are lower, some of these other things, sexism, sexual harassment, all of these kinds of things. So the same issues, but they definitely took on a particular form in the French context and that opposition between women who saw this as an opportunity and women who saw it as a kind of 
suppression of femininity or the idea that seduction plays an important role in French culture and French society and that this emphasis on radical equality and on persecuting publicly sometimes men who had committed a range of acts, that that was just the introduction of a foreign element, of a foreign morality into French relations. Let's go back a hundred years or so. Can you set up the next song? So the next song is a song that was recorded in the interwar years, so between the two world wars, by Josephine Baker. And it's called J'ai deux amours. There's something so nostalgic about that sound. Mm -hmm. Josephine Baker was just one of several Black American artists who were in Paris, who called Paris home in the 1920s. What was it about Paris that made it, that drew so many Black Americans in that period? Paris has long been a kind of cultural center uh, for musicians, artists, um, even before this period, after the, the First World War. But it was a place that, in particular, African-American artists, they saw in Paris and in France an opportunity to escape the, the type of racism that existed and the type of segregation and discrimination that they experienced in the U.S. It's so powerful to hear the words, a community in exile, mm. when we're listening to a song where she's calling both Paris and the U.S. her home. Yeah, yeah, that she loves both of them yeah. equally. So she was a big part of this scene of African-American artists and musicians. I think her image drew on not only ideas, uh, you know, she was American, but she also performed in a way that was very provocative. uh, And she drew on all sorts of images and representations of Black women in particular. So she danced in a banana skirt. She uh, danced in a semi-nude 
review. She uh, brought in themes that drew on African culture and Caribbean culture. And so she became this kind of every black woman for largely white French audiences, right? So she was part of this black community, but she was entertainment for French culture and society in that way that drew on all those different racial and enforce some of those racial stereotypes about black women, especially. And yet one could be uh, tempted to call that sound of that song very French. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, she sounded French. She sung in, she sang in French um, and in English. And then she became really immersed in French culture and she stayed there, you know, for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. It sounded uh, like when you described the sense of opportunity for black artists in Paris in the 20s, you wanted to add a but. What's the but? So there were other black people in France in the 20s and in, right. and in Paris in the 20s. Um, and I think when we talk about and even romanticize the very lively, wonderful culture of African-Americans in Paris in this period. The people that get left out of that story are all of the people throughout the French Empire and those who happen to be living in France and in Paris who had a very, very different experience of racial dynamics in France. And this community of African-Americans in France has allowed the French to, this tradition kind of of fleeing to, to Paris has allowed the French to, to really tout their universalism and their embrace and, you know, it's a race-blind society. But that is not the reality or the history that exists in France or existed in its empire for other Black mm-hmm. figures. Hello and welcome to France 24's special coverage of Josephine Baker's induction into the Pantheon here in Paris. The Missouri-born dancer, who was also a spy for the French during the World War II and a civil rights activist, will be honoured in the final resting place of France's most celebrated citizens. Among those attending the ceremony will be members of her family. How does that kind of uncertain position that she had in France fit into the symbolism around who she is today, like the decision to symbolically inter her into the Pantheon, for example. Bringing Josephine Josephine Baker into the Pantheon was an incredible moment in French culture and politics to talk about race in France. Of course, it was exciting to have this first, first Black woman brought into the Pantheon. That was an exciting moment and what that represented and to have her history and her legacy honored in this way. But it also became an opportunity for a number of people, including scholars of Black France, Black scholars, to talk about the fact that contemporary race relations in France are a real serious ongoing concern. You know, since 2020, France has had its own version of Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And to see the way that this inclusion doesn't, it doesn't eliminate or it shouldn't erase the very complicated histories of race in France and the very complicated problem of racial inequality in contemporary France. We are listening to, next, a song that has been referred to as the Marseillaise of the Resistance. It was written uh, during the Second World War, and it is called Le Chant des Partisans. Amis, entendu le vol noir des corbeaux sur nos plaines. Amis, entendu les cris sous du pays 
such a simple song just a drum and voices mm-hmm. but it sends chills down the back totally it was meant to be an anthem of the french resistance yeah. the resistance you know higher ups and people throughout the french resistance were really aware of the power of song to unite people like a national anthem but in this case a national anthem that sort of came from exile uh, and came to represent the free french and you can hear the melody that sound of this melody when whistled became really iconic mm. and was during the war a way that people once the song became popular throughout the resistance it was a way that people could tell or let people know that they were also with the resistance in occupied in France so it was that sound as in its simplicity has that kind of militaristic vibe mm. but it also uh, it was very easy for it to become the most recognizable tune associated with the resistance. So are, did people literally whistle to each other so they know if... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are stories of people, I mean, some of them may be apocryphal, but there are stories of people letting each other know like that the coast was clear by right. whistling or just being able to recognize another resistant um, from the song. Like if you knew the song and you were singing the song, yeah. like that probably meant that you were on the right side yeah. of the of the war. Oh, et partisans, ouvriers, paysans, c'est l'alarme. You said that it came from exile. Can you just tell the story of how it came about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the melody was composed by this Russian woman who had left, had she had been living in France and she had fled France to London, like a number of uh, French people had done uh, to, to escape the German occupation um, or just before the German occupation in 1940, and she came up with this melody, and eventually, you know, members of the Free French Forces, members of the Resistance had heard the song, found lyricists to come up with words to the song that refer to the cause of the Resistance and defending France, and the whole thing came together and then had to be smuggled into France, which is this crazy story, um, was smuggled into France by the RAF, you know, would the drop Royal off. Air Force. Yeah, the Royal Air Force. The British Royal Air That's Force. That's right. And they would drop packages in France. And the lyrics, the handwritten lyrics to this song, uh, the music to the song was shared throughout France after being brought in in that way, wow. in the way that other things would be smuggled in. The idea of resistance is almost, you know, inextricably linked in our minds to France and mm-hmm. French history. Mm-hmm. Where does it sit today? Like, where does that idea sit today? That's a really good question. After the war, immediately after the war, I mean, France was divided during the war, right? There's a, uh, a the Vichy state was a collaborationist state, uh, collaboration collaborating with the Germans, and the uh, the Free French and the leadership of De Gaulle mm-hmm. was operating outside of France. And then after the war, it becomes the story about the war that. France resisted, that there were these pockets of people who who didn't, but that that the real France is to be found in the story of the resistance, rather than confronting that the real France also included collaboration and the real France also deported thousands of French Jews, French and foreign Jews who happened to be in France to Nazi camps. So um, 
that's that struggle, like that coming to terms with that past and trying to figure out a way to understand that the real France was both of those things, at least during the Second World War, was a, was a really important kind of moment of crisis. And, and it's not really over. I think it's people ongoing. are still dealing with that. Yeah. So the next song uh, is quite special. What is it? Yes, uh, it is La Vie en Rose, performed by Edith Piaf. Des yeux qui font baisser les miens Un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche Voilà le portrait sans retouche De l'homme auquel j'appartiens Quand il me prend dans ses bras Il me parle tout bas Je vois la vie en So the first thing that comes to mind for me is 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 weddings because I didn't know this before I lived in France. I knew the song. I knew that it was a love song. I, I knew all of that. But I didn't realize that it's a song that you hear at every single French wedding yeah. and um, that everybody knows the words to. I mean, uh, I think people here, a lot of people here know the words to, but it's like a... Everybody can sing this song in France. It's kind of an end of a night drunken song. Yes. <laughs> Where everybody joins in. That's right. Yeah. Everybody can sing along. But also, I remember hearing it just on the streets, you know, as a lone trumpeter in Paris, just totally. in the middle of the night playing yeah. a solo, and it's this song. Yeah. What is the story in this song? It's a story of what her lover says to her, you know, and that when she's with him and hears the sweet words that he whispers to her or speaks to her in low tones, you know, that she sees life, the direct translation is life in, in pink, but I guess we would say rose-colored glasses, like that that's what love does to her. Mm. But when you know her life story and how much struggle she faced and her kind of brokenhearted various episodes of heartbreak and her drug struggle with drugs and like all of these things, the song just takes on a whole other quality, I think. Was there a specific context to the song when it was first recorded? It was, I think one of the things that I think is that I think is important about the song is that it's really like an end of war song. And so I hear it, I mean, I'm a French historian, so when I hear it, I hear Piaf, I hear her life story, I hear the tradition of romance that France and Paris, especially all of those things are supposed to capital of love, number mm. one honeymoon destination. Yes. So it, it has all of those things. I, I think of all of those things, but I also think of, you know, what the end of the war means, what kind of optimism people have about 
the future when the Second World War ends, but then also what sort of legacies are going to be left by the war and that there's like a melancholy that's never going to really go away or that isn't going to go away despite the liberation. Despite So that's what I hear when I think of the song because of when it was written and released in that immediate post-war period. Mm -hmm. So when I think about this song, I also think about especially the role of women in France in this period and the role that they'll play in the recovery, but also in that immediate period of the liberation, um, women who had had relations of different kinds with German soldiers were labeled horizontal collaborators, and many of them were pulled into the streets and shaved, had their heads shaved publicly, right? So even though this song isn't about those things, because of the moment of its release and because of that atmosphere in France, yes, it makes me think of weddings but it now, but it also makes me think of that history and that moment when people would have heard it and what they would have been experiencing and thinking about at that time. A very difficult time. Yeah. This is Matthew Halton of the CBC speaking from France. Crowds are in the streets, sometimes singing the Marseillaise, watching Frenchmen and Americans bring in truckload after truckload of German prisoners. Just now, a deep silence fell over the crowd when three French women were brought in. Other women had been booed because they had lived with the Germans. That was a shameful enough thing to the French, but these last three women were not booed. They were just stared at in a terrible silence because they had sent members of the resistance movement to torture and death. They will be tried by court-martial and probably shot, said a French doctor of the resistance. And then I said, but doctor, there's one thing I don't like. I don't like to see these women having their hair shaved off. I saw the Germans do that in 1933. And after all, in every country there are loose women who are in their living that way. That's the fault of society. The doctor replied, Yes, it's degrading. These women have consorted with Germans. For the most part, even our loose women refuse to do that. This is Matthew Halton of the CBC speaking from France. You're listening to Ideas and an episode we're calling The French Evolution, The History of France in Nine Songs. We're a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Tens of thousands of demonstrators have taken to the streets across France in a 10th day of national protests. Demonstrators are rallying against the government's pension reform plan, which was pushed through Parliament earlier this month. France has a long-running culture of protests, strikes and anti-government riots. 
And the CBC's Chris Brown is on this story for us. He joins me now from Paris, where some of the biggest protests have been taking place. It's a theme that'll come up a lot in this part of our musical journey through the history of France in the 20th and 21st centuries. Well, it's pretty noisy. Some guy just walked past me with like a ghetto blaster and blew my ears out. So there's lots and lots of noise here. Uh, drums, people banging on pots and pans, and of course, you know, you can hear it. They're, they're pretty happy. They're singing songs. It's not been a violent crowd. People still repeat some of these songs. People will sing working class songs from earlier in the 20th century, using songs as a form of protest, kind of that poetry set to music. Roxanne Panchassi is a history professor at Simon Fraser University with a focus on French culture, cinema, and music. So we're moving on in time, and you've got the next song for us. What's that? The next song is a song from 1954 by the poet and musician Boris Vian, and it is called Le Déserteur. Monsieur le Président, je vous fais une lettre que vous lirez peut-être si vous avez le temps. Je viens de recevoir mes papiers militaires pour partir à la guerre avant mercredi soir. Monsieur le Président, Je ne veux pas la fête, je ne suis pas sur terre pour tuer des pauvres gens. C'est pas pour vous fâcher, il faut que je vous dise, ma décision est prise, je m'en vais déserter. Le déserteur, le déserteur. It's an anti-war anthem. The first time it was performed was the day of France's defeat in Vietnam, Indochina, um, at Jen Ben Phu in May 1954. There was a time when the French were at least able to evacuate their wounded. But since the communists captured the airstrip, that has become impossible. Now no planes land or take off at Dien Bien Phu. Like a brutal colonial war... And then, of course, 1954 is also the year when the Algerian war really gets fired up. So it's it it emerged at this moment uh, between these, like sort of on the edge of these two colonial wars. And it is about a potential soldier's response to his conscription letter, like he's being called up wow. and he doesn't want to go. And he's writing to the president. Yeah. yeah. He writes a letter to the president. So it's a the, the song is in the form of a letter about how he doesn't want to kill people. And he's decided to to desert. Yeah. I mean, there there is so much in French culture, music and other forms of art that address the, the, the idea of resistance. Yeah. And in this case, it's the resistance against participating in a colonial war. So I think and... You know, we talked about the Le Chant des, des Partisans, and this song, in a different way, was a clandestine song because it was written and then released and then performed. But when it was first performed, Vian had to change the lyrics. So it wasn't addressed to the president. It was addressed to um, 
messieurs qu'on nomme grands, like the men of high places kind of thing. And so in those lyrics, he doesn't desert. The singer doesn't desert. He just decides that he can't, that wars are stupid and he doesn't want to participate in them. And at the end of the the last stanza of the song, when it was modified, isn't that in the original version of the song, Vian's lyrics are that, you know, the police or whoever are going to come for me if I desert and I ha- I'm armed. <laughs> I'm ready for them. <laughs> and the last stanza of the song was changed to the exact opposite of that. Like, I won't be armed. And so they can you know, gummy down, basically. So that was when the song... So there are multiple versions of this song, and there's the more kind of anti-war version, and then there's more what's described as the more pacifist version. Mm -hmm. But the song was then banned from the radio uh, during... After 1954, so during the entire period of the Algerian War, and it wasn't allowed... they, they, They couldn't play it on the radio until 1962, the end of the Algerian War. So I really connected to that period and connected to resistance against that war in particular. The French didn't acknowledge officially that the Algerian War was a war until 1999. It was called the events. (laughs) It was called, you know, the events to restore order in North Africa. It was (laughs) referred to in these kinds of oblique ways. And it wasn't until 1999 that there was an official (laughs) decision to acknowledge that there was something called an Algerian War from 1954 to 1962. So that alone, you know, shows the suppression of that story. It's another one of those kinds of things where people know what happened, but public acknowledgement, public discussion of those things, and the suppression of archives, documents, and the history of that, you know, it only starts to open up decades later. And I'd say that the legacies of that conflict, along with other colonial wars and struggles, combined with the fact that there is this significant population of first immigrants, but then second generation young people, older people now, um, for the in the decades after the Algerian War, means that that legacy isn't settled at all. So that's the theme we are going to come back to in a moment. Um, but we have another song to listen to right now. Which, which is that one? So this is a song uh, from 1968 by Jacques Dutron, and it is called Il est 5 heures, Paris s'éveille. Je suis le dauphin de la place Dauphine et la place blanche à mauvaise mine. Les camions sont pleins de lait, les balayeurs sont pleins de balais. Il est 5 heures. Paris s'éveille Paris s'éveille Les travestis vont se raser Les stripteaseuses sont rhabillées Les traversins sont écrasés Les amoureux sont fatigués Il est 5 heures Paris So it it sounds like a frenetic morning in Paris. <laughs> yeah, it is morning in Paris, and it it touches on all of these different uh, sort of landmarks and places across the city. But it became this kind of anthem for 1968 and the eruption of student and worker protests uh, in May for several weeks. 
because it's this song about Paris waking up, right? So it's a song about the morning and about different things going on uh, in the city, but it became this kind of, it, it became really connected to that idea of Paris and of France waking up. But it wasn't the intention. No, it was just supposed to be a cool song about, you know, based on, I think the story was just, yeah, let's make a song about Paris in the morning and what the city is like and this upbeat tune about about the city, yeah. So how does that happen? How does how did the song become <laughs> the anthem for something that was um, quite an upheaval? I think it was just the moment of its release. You know that it pe- people started to hear it and associate it with that. There were other versions of the lyrics, like none of them come to mind right now, but other ro- versions of the lyrics that kind of upped that revolutionary protest vibe in the song. Um, and then it became one of these songs that was adopted by protesters, and they'd sing them, you know, on the barricades and in the streets. They'd sing the song, uh, and you know, because the events of May, as they were they're called in France, erupted really just a few weeks before the song was released. Okay. Can you can you just explain what the events of May were? The context of 1968 is one in which we're like a generation out from the Second World War. A huge baby boom follows the Second World War, a lot of young people exploding universities, the eruption of strikes and protests sort of begins with these student protests. And you've got this huge community, as I say, of young people, this generation that's kind of exploding um, in the mid to, to late 60s. The students and the workers, there's a kind of solidarity that emerges there for a period of time. There's also all kinds of broader contextual stuff in terms of, you know, a few, we're a few years out from the end of the Algerian War, different economic issues uh, that are coming to a, a head in, in France and political issues. And it all sorts of sort of comes together in the largest population center, Paris. But this is also a moment of European-wide protest that involves students and workers in various ways, worldwide protests. So Paris in 68 is connected to other places in 68. Um, and then there's very specific French things that are going on that, that, that bring this about. The stench of tear gas, fallen trees, and burned out barricades. The aftermath of a night of rioting in Paris, the city they called the capital of peace. After dark, the demonstrators began throwing up walls of bricks, iron grills, overturned cars, anything movable. Using tear gas and concussion grenades, the police charged. It was the beginning of a five-hour battle on the barricades, the worst street fighting in Paris since the Second World War. The Latin Quarter was laid waste. 460 people arrested, 360 injured. I have a, a today lens on on Paris and France, and I I associate protests with France because mm-hmm. it's, somehow I always ended up being there on May first. Oh yeah, <laughs> there was always a protest on May first, and there was always violence and you know tear gas and that kind of thing. Can you draw a line between 1968 and and this kind of this the the ongoing protests that happen in France? Oh, absolutely, and you can la- draw a line in both directions, right? So Paris is considered a center of revolution since at least the French Revolution of 1789. And that atmosphere of urban unrest, people taking to the streets, that idea that French citizens have a right to do that, to express their opposition to the state or to various other things that are happening by 
uh, heading into the streets in the thousands and the millions. Mm -hmm. That is a long-standing tradition. It happens all through the 19th century and into the 20th century. 68, as it's shortened, uh, as it's referred to, 68, May 68, even though it went into to, to the end of June, um, is one explosive moment uh, where you know millions of people end up on strike in France, workers throughout the country. Uh, but that tradition, I mean, when I used to live in France, like every Saturday, you just kind of knew that if I, you know, if you're in a car or something, that you'd be yes. rerouted yes. because there's a manif over here or whatever. <laughs> there's some kind of social action over here. It's just sort of understood, and I've always really admired that that there's this real commitment to expressing your political views and to people really rallying and getting out into the streets. I think we do that here sometimes, mm -hmm. but not not with the same kind right. of regularity and intensity as the French do it. So earlier we were talking about um, how the legacy of colonialism and, how, and the role that plays in, in French history and music. There's another song that kind of addresses that theme. Yes, this is a song. Well, it's a cover of uh, a 1940s song by Charles Trenet, who I mentioned earlier. The song is called Douce France, but it's performed here in the 1980s by a group called Carte de Séjour. Il revient à ma mémoire Des souvenirs familiers Il revient à ma mémoire Des souvenirs familiers Il revient à ma mémoire Des souvenirs familiers Je revois ma blouse noire Lorsque j'étais écolier So this sounds nothing like the original song. <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't. It's a cover, as you said, of, of an earlier one. Tell me about the original before we talk about this one. So the original is one of those classic songs that, you know, is kind of a tribute to France, the nation, how sweet it is, how lovely. And it's like a real positive song and nostalgic. It's sort of a nostalgic song about childhood and about growing up in France and uh, so an iconic song. And then in the 1980s, it was covered by this group that was formed uh, in 1980 by Rashita, who is Algerian. Uh, R.I.P. Rashita died in mm -hmm. 2018. And it took on this whole other significance to have this group that combines um, sounds, North African sounds, including Rai, this sort of Algerian music that takes on pop sounds as well and like kind of mixes those and singing a song that was so much the kind of song that represents 
old school, what we would say, Francais de souche, like from the roots, right? This, this, that type of France to be sung by these people from parts of the former colonial empire. Yeah. And, and, and people who've called themselves as a group, carte de séjour, which actually means residency permit. Yes. Yes. So, so the message here goes beyond this particular song. Yes, absolutely. For them to sing the song is meaningful, but the song was also released at a moment of, well, I mean, when is there not a moment of intense debate about immigration in France? But this was a particular moment of mm-hmm. intense debate about immigration, about nationality, about who is French. And so a group that, you know, called Carte de Séjour singing a song that's a classic of French national culture that is usually understood to be white and Catholic um, this really spoke to, like, brought up the history of the former colonial empire, but also the legacy that is there in terms of immigrants to France, their children who are French citizens, uh, all of those kinds of issues. I mean, the thing with Douce France is it is sort of like a, it is a love song to France, but it's sort of claiming that that love can also come from a different place or come from different people, and that 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 community has a right to Frenchness and France as well. I think when we move into the later 80s, when hip-hop and rap influences kind of come into France, then the assertiveness and the resistance that comes with those musical forms around questions of race and belonging and nationality, that really gets going uh, in a much more intense way into the later 80s and 90s. And you have an example of that, too. Yes. It's a, it's on from the 1990s by a group called NTM, and the song is called Qu'est-ce qu'on attend? Voici une réalisation spectaculaire qui prélude à l'extension de la ville conçue dans un esprit futuriste et grandiose, le Val Fouré. Les années passent, pourtant tout est toujours à sa place plus Ce bitume donc encore moins d'espace vital Et nécessaire à l'équilibre de l'homme Non, personne n'est séquestré, mais c'est tout comme c'est comme De nous dire que la France avance alors qu'elle pense Par la répression stoppée, net, la délinquance, il faut plaire Let me go over some of the lyrics in this song <laughs> From now on, the street no longer forgives. We have nothing to lose because we never had anything. In your place, I wouldn't sleep peacefully. The bourgeoisie can tremble. The thugs are in the city. Not to party. What are we waiting for to set things on fire? Uh huh. <laughs> What's behind the anger in the song? Class inequality, for sure. Racism. The song begins with a promotion for these massive uh, suburban buildings that were built to accommodate large uh, communities, especially of immigrants and of poorer people. These They're known as the HLM and uh, in the suburbs. So I think we, we have in North America, especially an idea that the suburbs are a place for white flight, whereas in the French context, the suburbs, they can also be that, but they, they are often the places where poor uh, communities are kind of pushed outside of cities like Paris that are sort mm-hmm. of unaffordable for people. I mean, we know about that here too, I guess. Well, the name banlieue has has come to mean something other than suburb. Yes, yes. It's come to be associated, like from a somewhat racist perspective, to be associated with crime, uh, poverty, anger, violence, uh, you know, the burning of cars, like these sorts of things. In the urban trench warfare that rages in Paris suburbs, the night belongs to riot. 
Angry young men, mostly of Arab origin, who throw stones and bottles with seeming impunity at retreating police. Now, of course, as you say, the the fate of those areas has been has long been um, a subject of discussion. Let's say, and immigration has been a subject of discussion in France, but they definitely took on a new meaning as more extremist behavior and acts and attacks came to France. Can you speak to that? I mean, there's a, a lot of different storylines there, and one of them is certainly that uh, forms of radical Islam have been able to intrude upon and gain ground in, especially among younger populations who are marginalized in other ways by French society and who don't see other options. Uh, so there's the the resentment and violence of uh, that that comes that is that is connected to the kind of social and economic inequality and racism that I talked about earlier. But there's also this other storyline about the inroads that radical Islam has made within the French context. Uh, and that and and there's a kind of a collapsing of all of those problems and questions into one. So that the banlieue, rap music, all of these other things become associated very intensely with terrorism and the fear of terrorism. And in that atmosphere of fear, it's not that there aren't real issues of concern, but in that atmosphere of fear, there's been this kind of combination, viewing Islam as the source of France's problems, uh, making con- like seeing everyone who lives in the banlieue as an immigrant, even though some people are second or third generation. So using that term immigrant to refer to people who are born in France, um, all of those things coming together. But they've really, those those things have really played a role in modern politics and defining you know, new parties and, yes. and new attitudes in the political scene? Yes. Yeah. I think the extremes of contemporary French politics have definitely been tied to these perceived social ills, to the perceived threats to the French nation and French identity, to threats that have uh, been understood as threats to French secularism and Republican values. And the music kind of expresses some of that yeah. as well. Yeah. You have one last song for <laughs> us, which is perhaps unlike every other song we've heard today. What is it? It really is. It's a song that was released in 2001 by Daft Punk, and it's called Digital Love. Having fun, the kind of feeling. 
So this song is probably <laughs> the least political of all the songs that you've chosen. What's significant about Daft Punk? To me, so Daft Punk was formed in uh, 1993, this duo, uh, you know, that really came to represent a French version of electronic music, club music, dance music, uh, you know, variously referred to as French touch and other kinds of ways of referring to it as French. Um, they just disbanded a couple of years ago, although who knows, maybe they're coming back. I don't know. Uh, and I think this music, the popularity of Daft Punk around the world, that kind of universal sound that is still French, like the the music is that when there are lyrics, they're in English. Yes. But they are very, to me, they sound incredibly French. And I think the French are still very proud of Daft Punk. Hmm. I'll tell you, the first few years I listened to them, I had no idea they were French. I think a lot of people have no idea that, I mean, they don't, nothing about them is francophone in an obvious way. I think that there's all sorts of sounds coming out of France now and that this is, I mean, Daft Punk isn't making music right now, but there's still French rap. There's still pop music that's francophone like Angèle. There's Stromae, who's a huge international sensation, also Belgian, also really popular in France. I think there's such a mix of sounds coming out of France now that it includes things that seem to transcend and also music that's still responding to what's happening in France today. Roxanne, thank you so much for bringing all this great music to us. Well, thank you, Nala, for having me and for listening to, to all these great songs with me. <laughs> You are listening to French Evolution, the history of France in nine songs. Roxanne Penchassi is a professor of history at Simon Fraser University. This episode was produced by Matthew Lazen Ryder, with special thanks to John Scaife at the CBC Archives. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast. If you liked the episode you just heard, check out our vast archive, where you can find more than 300 of our past episodes. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nicola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.